You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. So, Martin, here we go. We are a couple of weeks now past the interim accord report, and I'm sure things are moving and shaking relatively quickly. Uh, what, what has been happening? There certainly was a busy week last week in Canberra. They, we had the National Press Club address this time from David Lloyd as the incoming UA chair. We had uh, plenary sessions and workshops of, of the universities Australia grouping themselves that Jason and Mary O'Kane had joined. And um, yeah, r- ramping up the engagement and the commentary by the sector about this landmark report and review of the sector's future. So um, with the September, the first deadline for submissions of a second stage process and the sector sharing its views of what its future should be. Martin, David Lloyd taking on the new role, he's been on the HeadX podcast with us and he struck me then and, and does now as someone that is hardwired into innovation. So I, I see this as an incredible um, you know, progressive step towards change. Would I be right? Well, I think um, many people will have that view. And I know lots of people, and me and you included, had that view about the interview we had with David. He he was um, a very young appointment as a vice chancellor at the University of South Australia, coming here from um, Trinity College in Dublin a decade or so ago, and did some very innovative things around using technology and seeking the voice of all within his organisation and thinking about strategy, organisation, and really what the future of UniSA should be. An awful a lot's happened since then, of course, and we've now got UniSA and the University of Adelaide on the verge of merger. But yes, a very interesting time for someone with that track record and history of technology, listening to all voices and thinking about innovation to leading to be leading the sector, because that's certainly much of what the sector needs, in my view, and, and certainly an element of the debate that's going on at the moment. Yeah, that demand mentality of assessing what's required, what the demand is, and then adjusting and assembling resources internally to to suit. Um, yeah, that's largely what we talk about in terms of innovation in the sector and, and beyond. I think uh, David's going to be a great asset in that, that case. Well, I think there's a number of little themes in there that, that connect well with who our guest is today, Carl, who's someone that both you and I have known for some little while, it reflects with the view of, and and I think this is a really important issue for our sector and for the Accord right now. I think there's lots of voice being given to the supply side of the equation, lots of submissions, lots of commentary from individual universities, from the different groups of universities. But our employers, our future students, our um, our other stakeholders of the sector getting enough voice? And are we, given that we're looking 25 years ahead for what the universities will need to be, be producing as a skilled workforce by then from new sources of students, are we giving enough voice to a younger demographic? Are we giving, in many ways, the example of David Lloyd being given his head as the head of UniSA at a relatively young age, mm. and now as a still dynamic and innovative vice chancellor heading up the um, the peak body, have we got enough of the new young thinking into leadership, populating our views about the future of the sector and, and the direction we should be taking? Let's go to our guests today just after the short message from our sponsor 
Enjoying the HeadX podcast? You should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo and more. Find The Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today's guest on HeadX is Dr. Nora Kozlovsky, and Nora is the Chief Learning Innovation Officer at the Melbourne Business School. And Nora, you took up that role in February 2020, which, thinking back, is um, just a couple of weeks before the start of the pandemic, when you uh, arrived into a role in what turned out to be the most locked down city in the world, if memory serves me right. But um, Nora's determined to transform education and ensure that the next generation of business leaders learn in a way that helps them lead in a skills revolution, which makes her an ideal guest for this particular episode of HeadX and a really interesting co-host for me and a series of uh, guests that she might bring to our podcast series in the weeks and months ahead. At Melbourne Business School, Nora and her team have created an online education brand called MBS Online and have set up a future of learning lab called MBS And, which has just launched its um, first future of learning in incubator. We might hear a little bit more about that in a minute. But closing my introduction of Nora, Nora holds degrees in psychology and management and teaching. She began her career as a researcher focusing on human technology interaction, and she quickly advanced into academic leadership roles, becoming a head of department before the age of of 30. That must have been a challenge. (laughs) And has since been a consultant to many ASX top 100 organizations, helping to equip leaders with a deep sense of purpose, a sense of hope for the part they can play in shaping the future. Nora, a very warm welcome to HeadX. Thank you so much, Martin. It's a pleasure to be here. Nora, I've described in, in that introduction your really fascinating mission and purpose in life and your journey through a career to date and your your career in academic and academic leadership and then consulting has clearly been diverse can you start us off by just describing what your journey has been as you've worked in different parts of the world how you came to land in Melbourne at a business school that's as I understand it set up by business for business with a corporate board and how you come to be leading and pioneering new approaches to learning and learning innovation what's your story yeah, sure. Let's let's get right into it, Martin. So uh, what is my story? You, you'll hear from the accent. Born and raised in Germany and moved to Ireland as a teenager, um, studied in Ireland and then moved to the UK and finally to Australia. So that's, that's sort of the backstory. One of the reasons why I'm very passionate about transforming education is um, how my parents grew up. So both of my parents came from Germany's East and both of their families separately to each other fled Eastern Germany to the West just before the um, the wall was completed in being built. And so they they effectively, they left their home with nothing. Um, so my dad still talks about how he had one toy that he was allowed to bring because you had to leave in the middle of the night as so as to not arouse suspicion and then ended up in a, in a refugee camp in, in Western Germany. And that story of kind of growing up with not having anything really shaped who they were and and how they live. And what was interesting then is because they had access to education, both of my parents became uh, very well educated uh, with advanced degrees and did really well for themselves in life. But that was because they had access to good education at no cost. 
um, which is still what Germany does to, to this day. So I think quite often in this sector that we're in, we sort of kid ourselves about the lack of the birth lottery. And, and I think we often neglect that fact. And so I am driven, deeply driven to make sure that education and, and high quality education is available to more people than ever in order to to bridge gaps of of disadvantage and that's that's really what i'm here to do you mentioned in your introduction i started out as a, a young academic so i became an academic around age 25 and then a, an academic head of department uh, at about age 29 and that was a really interesting education in well how do you lead in an academic environment but how do you drive change um, because one of my early experiences was I was working with a very progressive dean who wanted to implement um, technology into the curriculum into assessment so the dean I was working with as an academic head of department took a decision that we would not do any more exam-based assessment everything would go online and that was well over 10 years ago now and you can imagine as a an under 30 year old female having managing a sort of academic workforce of about 30 odd professors, many of them 20, 30 years older than me, um, trying to convince them that you will only do your assessment online, you will do the grading online, you will provide consistent feedback of a certain quality and in a particular time frame. That was a, a real baptism of fire when it comes to leadership and academic leadership. And now you find yourself at Melbourne Business School, which, as I said in the introduction, is a very different sort of business school. How did you end, come to end up there leading learning innovation in such a prestigious institution. So I, I was really drawn back into a more purpose-led environment. And that's really what I found at Melbourne Business School. So while it's founded for business by business, as I mentioned, it is set up as a, a not-for-profit and it does take um, that foundation very seriously. So there's a there's a very strong um, sense of mission. There's a very strong sense of, of purpose and of the role that we play in shaping the leaders of Australia's future and what they learn, how they learn and the values that they bring to that. So I was really, um, yeah, I was really attracted by that. And so, as you said, I joined in 2020, two weeks just before the pandemic. I was also 31 weeks pregnant at the time. So it was really, really interesting. And I joined as director of organizational learning. So I was supposed to join to help create what's the content that our clients, our learners learn. Um, how do they learn? We had been so face-to-face -face as an institution. Yeah, then over the course of the last three years, I was very lucky to be supported by uh, quite a forward-thinking board of directors and quite forward-thinking leadership. And we invested heavily in digital, in online, um, which has now culminated in having created uh, what's called learning innovation. So we really invested in our digital infrastructure. Um, you may have seen we've created Australia's first virtual classroom recently, which is a sort of wraparound of you know 80 screens and and it's sort of um, almost the theatre of physical education, but in a virtual sense. Um, we invested really heavily in developing a lot of online products. Um, and then growing the capability and very different capabilities to, to what you and I will have seen at, at universities before. So um, you've already you've already described some of the next question I was going to ask, but maybe maybe you can give us further examples in in terms of what's different about learning innovation at MBS and the learning innovation lab that you've set up. Out, outline its strategic goal, its current profile of activities and and how you might summarize what makes it distinct to more conventional approaches to innovation in learning in, in other Australian universities? What sets it apart? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, so learning innovation, 
and I, I think learn innovation as a concept or as a as a business unit, it, it's starting to take off certainly around um, at universities around the world, but it's still a reasonably new concept. And most universities that I know of globally who have a learning innovation team tend to have it narrowly defined. So often it's about a unit that supports teaching innovations, perhaps, or um, that updates the methods of teaching. Whereas for us, we actually created learning innovation to have two businesses that are housed within it. So that is Melbourne Business School Online, and that is what we call MBS and, so this innovation hub. And then in addition to that, we have um, an entire technology team. We have an entire transformation team. So it's it's quite broad in that it's deliberately set up to create these businesses um, as well as having capability. And so let me just come to, you were asking about the innovation hub specifically. Let me come to, to what that is and how it's set up and why. Um, and what's unique about that is it it's not a... Um, it's not a broad-based pedagogical innovation play. It's really a small, narrow slice. So what we focus on within that is workforce development. That's what we know. That's what we're good at. So coming back to that by business for business ethos, we want to focus on developing workforces within organizations. And what we're seeking to do with MBS and is to find sort of fellow trailblazers and people who are curious and innovative, assemble them into our community and then um, redefine how learners, how organizations grow and launch innovative products, launch innovative services or even businesses together. Um, so within that is is just partnership is not, you know, when we talk about universities, partnerships is often seen as a, an add-on or an afterthought. For us, partnerships with industry partners, with technology partners is foundational. It's deep core to who we are and what we do that's really fascinating that that description of partnerships are, are there different forms of partnership that you have with different types of external organization and maybe you can give us some examples of those different types of partnership and and how you're working on some some specific activities that support your aims yes absolutely so this year um, what we're focused on is uh, we've launched in May 2023, we launched our first, uh, what we call our Future of Learning Beta Incubator. And so that Beta Incubator is a 12-week program. And it started with six problem statements in the future of learning and future of work. So they include problem statements like how do we ensure that lifelong learning um, is made real rather than just a, a trend? They include problem statements like how do we ensure that there is affordability and accessibility of education? Um, and so starting with those problem statements, we went into a deep research phase, conducting lots and lots of interviews with organizational partners, with experts and with end learners. Um, and I'll give you an example of some of the, the partners that are involved um, in that research and, and in that incubator process. So they include the likes of, for example, um, learning and development experts from Canva, from REA Group, from Temple and Webster, uh, from Coles, Judo Bank, a whole lot of um, really interesting organizations that are in, in their own right, um, very progressive about the future of learning. And, and they're coming in to help us brainstorm these problems. 
And then from the, the problem areas, we came up with a hundred ideas of potential products or services or, or businesses that could actually tackle those, those big problems. And now we're halfway through the incubator process. And yeah, we're now down to about three. So the next step for us is to, um, to really commit to what are the prototypes that we're going to launch? How are we going to launch them? Who are we going to partner with? So we are speaking very actively with technology partners. We're talking actively with venture funds, um, talking actively with um, yeah adjacent and people who are doing doing similar things all around the world, um, because we don't believe that um, a single organization can actually solve for future skills or future learning challenges alone. So it's, it's really important for us to partner. That sounds um, great, Nora, and maybe, maybe in the interests of um, you being a future co-host on the HeadX podcast, you might be able to bring some of the stories of the partnerships you're developing with some of those sorts of organisations to uh, to some of our future conversations. Is, is that likely to be possible, do you think? I I think we'll have some fascinating conversations with, yeah, with organisations in uh, with learning and development experts, with technology partners, I, I think we can bring them in and actually join the debate around what will it take for Australia to solve for its skills issues. A lovely expression. And um, it, for me, sort of drives at one of one of the biggest drivers for learning innovation, which appears to be this combination of the need for building different skills for a very different future of work that many people are, are, are seeing emerge, but also... Um, the demand that is emerging for different forms of engagement because of expectations that staff and learners and employers all have to the adjustments that we're making for the sort of period that we're living in. Are those two drivers of skills and forms of engagement, um, are they impacting the way that MBS and, and your activities are approaching this disruption, if that's what I hear you describe in education from within one of our most um, prestigious institutions. Is that what's going on with your work at MBS? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the two drivers that you describe is certainly shape and inform our work. And let's just let's let's talk through them in a bit more detail. And I think there, there might be additional drivers as well. But even just when you start with different forms of engagement, I think this entire creator economy, the shift of generations, to me, it's telling us that people want to engage with institutions, with brands, with people in a different way. It's not a sort of hierarchical institution that's the holder of all knowledge. And you just sort of consume that in a way that's in however, whatever way it's presented to you. It's more, I think people want informality in their interactions. They want a friendly face they want connection and so it's not necessarily you know that that sort of expert on a pedestal I think the generation that we're now starting to see coming in to the workforce so thinking about Gen Z or, or, or thinking about alphas I think they really want um, almost peers that they can learn from so they're, they're probably more likely to learn from a fellow 18 year old on TikTok explaining how something works than and I hate to say this as a as a reformed academic than somebody who's you know at a very different point in life and, and talks very differently and, and looks very different to them so we do have to grapple with that as a sector and so quite deliberately with learning innovation the entire setup was about inclusivity of community and co-creation rather than um, trying to be removed from our community. And even now we're about seven months into what we call MBS and 
the community is already about 265 members strong and largely it's centered around an, uh, an online community on social media that's sort of where all of the um the main engagements are being held and some of that of course uh translates to to face to face but certainly not all of it i think the foundation of that experience is actually held online and in the future who knows you know is that going to be held in the metaverse it might well be but i think you also touched on skills for the future of of work and i think that's that's such a core problem to anchor what we do and and to really think about why we do what we do um so when we were set up generative ai was uh, you know perhaps just starting to get a bit of traction and and a bit of publicity um at the time it was all about upskilling for the digital age whereas that now seems like okay that needs to happen quickly and what's the next thing which is upskilling for the ai revolution and i i think you know australian organizations we already see massive skills gaps we see particularly um severe skills gaps in 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 tech skills uh we see challenges with australia's performance in terms of being able to compete globally um with regard to innovation so a real challenge is how do we transform all of these these massive workforces think about organizations that have 10,000 40,000 employees how do we massively transform their skill base to be fit for the digital and then for the ai age and that's that's not going to happen through traditional education that's going to have to happen rapidly through um forms of upskilling that we don't even really understand or practice at this point in time um so that's yeah that that's i think a, a really big challenge for us and so one of the things that we're looking at within learning innovation is could we utilize peer to peer structured peer to peer learning through platforms as one way to to solve for the rapid upskilling gap um yeah and then one last thing just on that you know what are the what are this the challenges we're anchoring ourselves in is relevance i think the question of relevance of our sector is something that keeps me up at night just i i think are we asking the right questions about why do we exist um how are we structured how are we created um how do we serve our communities i i think that's a really big question for a sector to answer and i don't know that we're we're doing that enough right now collectively well there you go you've you've taken us in an interesting direction there because we're having this conversation after the release of the interim reports on the university's accord process and i mean there's been much optimism in the sector immediately on its release in some of the commentary that's followed about the headline matter of of celebrating that australia will need many more graduates and learners in the future that will have to acquire new skills that will have to find them in new places drawing on more equity communities and currently underrepresented groups and that will need them because they'll be in this, they'll be so vital for our workforce needs for our economy and our society and say 2050 in in more than 25 years time and so while that growth ambition has been celebrated i sense there's a lot less certainty and maybe your comments have just added to it that uncertainty as as to who will provide that education and learning for the increased numbers of of learners and more diverse learners and what skills and pedagogies they will need and will be able to achieve and, and apply i mean in 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 that with that introduction what are your thoughts about the highlights the gaps and the priorities you see in the accord interim reports 
and your feelings about whether or not it goes far enough in facilitating, providing for, and indeed anticipating the sort of new forms of learning, the new providers and the adoption of new technology and innovation that seems to underpin what you're doing at MBS. Mm. Yeah, so I think let's just start with what's great and what is worth celebrating. So I do think, I, I do love that goal of growth for skills through greater equity. I think, you know, you can tell from just the introduction of my personal story, I am, I'm really driven by this, this um, seeing the need for equity in education. And I do think, yes, we need to, we need to serve a broader pool of people and we need to upskill rapidly. So I'm, I'm very aligned with the goal of what's being articulated in the court interim report. I also would commend that there is a strong focus on um, skills through collaboration of higher education and the vet sector. I think that's a that's a that's a really strong aspect of it. Um, and I love some of the ideas that are coming out of it. Like, uh, could we have a national skills pass passport? Could we focus more on recognition of prior learning and and really? thinking more broadly about what learning is and what we can actually uh what we can accredit rather than a very narrow view so I think there's there's a lot to to like and I also wouldn't underestimate just how difficult it must be to have this broad reaching consultation with so many institutions individuals and so many different interests so I, I think you just have to sort of say that up front and then going into where I'm sitting and and sort of the role I play in this industry, uh, I, I do think there are still some opportunities and, and some gaps that I'm seeing. Um, so particularly, I think for me, one of the, the big questions is who actually, who helps with the skills issue? I think we're focusing too narrowly on universities and, and perhaps the TAFE sector being the answer to that problem. And I can give you some of my own examples of how I've acquired skills in the last few years. So when I've had my, my two kids when they were newborns, and I needed to learn how to swaddle a newborn. I did that through YouTube, right? Just watching fellow new parents swaddling a baby. When I need a refresher on how to change a tire, I'm not going to call an expert. I'm going to go on YouTube. That's that's just, you know, that's sort of the reality. And I'm, I mean, thinking about, you know, I'm sort of late 30s, thinking about somebody who's 18 now will even take that much further than I do. Um, so where do skills come from? I think skills come from your entire sort of way of engaging, whether it's online or offline. So I think, you know, people now, they might read something, they might read a summary on Blinkist, they might you know watch a TikTok video. It, can all of that be considered skill building? Yeah, I think it can. So, so I do love that idea of a skills passport, but I actually just being realistic, the generation that's going to be coming into the workforce, will they want a national skills passport that's developed by government or that's developed by the university sector? Mm, I doubt it. So I suspect the winner here would be some sort of an edtech startup developing a beautiful user interface and creating almost like a, a Fitbit for higher education. I think that's what I see the equivalent of a, a skills passport being. 
Um, so that would be my provocation as to, okay, skills probably needs to be considered much more broadly. That's fascinating, Nora. So with all those new ways of acquiring skills that um, you see already um, learners are turning to, and we can only anticipate will be even more important to them in the future, how does an organisation like MBS then embrace those forms of learning, those forms of skills development, those new innovations in the offerings that it's making to its current markets and its preparations for the future? I mentioned that partnerships for us are foundational they're not an afterthought and so already you know, we're not sure yet what the prototypes of new products new educational services or businesses are going to be coming out of our incubator um, there's been a very strong desire to get close to edtech startups and and scale-ups and so we've really we've invested very strongly in building our relationships with that community we probably at this point have relationships with every single startup hub in this country um, and and overseas and similarly with venture funds, especially those that are focusing on educational technology. And so the idea for us is to have a very strong awareness of um, what are the new ed tech companies that are being built. And then depending on where we want to go, who do we partner with um, in creating products and creating services and so on. Um, so that's that's certainly how we're going in that space. And I can give you some concrete examples of how that's already happened in the past. So for us, a lot of the work really is, as I mentioned, the small slice is, is workforce development is really what, what we're very good at and what we're known for. Um, and we've, since the start of 2022, we've had a collaboration with Google and with News Corp and really using um, educational technology platforms to help them for their workforce need, which was rapid digital upskilling. Um, utilizing a platform to build a scalable um, sort of locationally distributed model, um, personalized model of learning that worked for their uh, their workforce. And it was it's been so successful. So we've we've now had about um, 400 learners go through that in this particular client through a platform. But it's been so successful that it's now being taken into into their U.S. workforce as well. So that's kind of, you know, we always try to do it through our work with clients. So it has direct use cases it has direct applicability it's not often you hear someone from um one of australia's universities talk so knowledgeably about connections with so many different people in the edtech community and and nora you recently hit the the headlines or at least the headlines that i look at anyway for for hosting an interview yourself with um sam altman the ceo of open ai during his recent tour of Australia when he rolled into Melbourne. I don't know how you pulled that one off, but um, on the back of that and, and other experiences, what what is your reading of how generative AI is impacting on everyone's skills needs for the future in Australia and of how learning providers as ed tech companies and as universities like your own will need to gear up and approach their, the future in their engagement with staff and students their partnerships with tech companies, and incorporate that into the learning experiences they provide. Is, is that going to be a huge issue for yeah. us in the next next little while and for longer into the future? I think that's an understatement. And what a fascinating time to observe changes in our sector. So I think it was already interesting to see this entire sector um, go through a digital transformation and now going through an AI revolution. I think we're not even seeing the beginnings of it, really. I think um, what we're going to see in our sector will, I think disruptive doesn't even really 
capture it. I think it truly will be a revolution. And I think it will be in terms of upheaval. I, I don't quite know how that's going to go, but I'm actually, I'm, I'm quite concerned about the upheaval from a cultural perspective, from a workforce perspective, from a skills base. So let's just sort of go back from that a little bit. But I think already we can see that every single job, whether you're in higher education or not, will be impacted and will be enabled and augmented by AI. And so for all of us, I think there is a there's a real need to upskill ourselves rapidly and understand how we can remain relevant, um, because I suspect the expectation will be that, yeah, everybody will have a base level of competence around how do you apply AI for at least productivity gains, if not to actually do things not just faster or more efficiently, but better. Um, so I think that's that's sort of the, the first thing. And I, I can see some examples of that happening in higher education already. I can see some of the more progressive individuals and institutions starting to question now that AI is broadly available and, and usable, um, what does it mean for how we deliver education? So what does it mean for things like assessment rather than just continuing to insist that we assess in the same way? I can see people starting to shift their practices. That said, some institutions, and I often attend roundtables of global education leaders talking about AI, what I am seeing sometimes is still just a policy response around here's how we expect our students and staff to use AI. So we often people will say they expect that you declare if you've used an AI tool. Um, and I think that's actually just the minimum sort of standard and policy doesn't quite cut it. For me, it's how do you integrate AI deliberately into strategy. Um, so what would that look like? I think what we might see is, um, sorry, this is a slight tangent, but are you watching Black Mirror? No, I'm not at the moment, but um, should I be? Yes. So there is a <laughs> fascinating episode. I think it's the first one uh, called Joan is Awful. And what you can see there is you can see actors kind of signing their IP and their rights away. So their video content um, basically can be used forever and and they just become uh, they become an AI version of themselves. Oh wow. And that kind of underpins the current strike that's happening in Hollywood, the current actor strike. We might see something similar in higher education hmm. because um, there are many AI tools available out there now that create AI videos. So all you have to do is you have to record some footage of yourself. And then after that, you can just go from text-based to an AI, an AI version of yourself into video. So you don't actually have to spend all of that time um, producing video content of somebody anymore. And... People are not going to like hearing this, but what I could see is once you've captured everybody on this AI system, you don't really need them to be teaching every class anymore. And you could just rapidly launch all of these AI videos of academics and industry experts. And I think that would completely change the shape, the size of workforces. It would completely change how we think of content and how we think of educational delivery. So I think that could lead to massive upheaval and sort of, I don't know, but uh, pretty severe cultural implications for our sector. I hasten to add to our listeners that all of this interview with Nora has been completed face-to-face -face and no AI tools have yet been used in extending that into the future. But um, that's... Or have there. <laughs> That's really fascinating, Nora. Um, so back to this interim report yeah. from the um, University's Accord then. What, what are your ob observations about the extent to which 
that process is embracing such ideas and has a focus on technology change and learning in innovation and how is it seeing our sector develop over the next 25 years in how skills can be developed for that period and how the supply side might um, operate to to provide those skills have, have we got that in our minds in the consideration and the production of this interim report of the university's accord strongly enough do you think i would say i can see ai being referred to i can see technology and technology enabled teaching being referred to i can see best practices being referred to from where i'm sitting there's an issue though if you consider technology to be just a modality shift or just a, a slight change in how we deliver education to me, and this has been a sort of personal journey that I've been on as well, it's a paradigm shift. So when you start creating uh, digital first education, you don't just you don't just play around the edges with it. So I'm not talking about remote Zoom delivery here. I'm talking about a sort of pure online product. Every single touch point that a student or a learner or a client has with the provider or institution that delivers it changes. So how you speak to students changes, how they want to engage with you changes. So you have to, all of the support services that wrap around um, a learning program have to actually be delivered differently. Um, everything from, so student experience, student support, how you deliver career services, library, everything is just, it's a sort of different way of interacting. And so you really have to, yeah, you have to think more in terms of how do you design a product from scratch, not how do you just change from one delivery methodology to another. And for me, that 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 truly is a paradigm shift where the learner comes first and is center of is at the center of everything. Um, so I, I can't personally, I can't see that yet in the report, but I think I think we can get there as a sector. Well, let's talk about how we get there in a minute, just as we bring this interview towards a close. But one thing that's just occurred to me in listening to you describe the challenges of embracing such radical technology is that I imagine that you have lots of thoughts about what culture is needed in organizations to be able to adequately embrace this sort of technology. And I imagine that applies to the sort of learning organizations that you're or the clients in learning that you're you're talking to and you might bring to us in future episodes but i also imagine it applies to the culture of universities what what's needed to further develop the culture of mbs and universities throughout australia do you think to be better prepared to make the most effective use of such fast changing technology are, are we ready for it are we ready for it? That's a very good question. Um, no, but uh, I am an optimist. I think we can be. So what is required in order to build cultures of innovation in our sector? I think you need to get to a culture that's much more around um, moving quickly, not not sort of moving perfectly. Um, so typically what you see in higher education is uh, strong kind of approvals processes, strong sense of hierarchy, decisions are often delayed or um, decisions can go through various sort of yeah, cycles and it really takes forever to move. So it's more of a, how do you get to empowerment? How do you get to enabling people to make decisions, even if they're the wrong decisions? I think given the pace of um, technological advances, we actually, I think we need to back ourselves and just, I think the wrong move is better than no move um, because no move is also a move. <laughs> so 
yeah um so i think that that's really crucial in the cultures is how do you how do you shift the pace how do you shift decision making how do you think about um also just just giving people more responsibility i think in in higher education typically everything sort of trickles up for a decision and nobody wants to stick their neck out how do you get past that how do you not punish mistakes how do you have a tolerance for for failure how do you as a leader as an academic leader as a university leader how do you actually talk about your own mistakes and i know that's like fashionable to talk about vulnerability but that's actually really important in our sector which is you know this sector is built on expertise it's built on hierarchy so we probably need to get away from that and into something that's more yeah how do you actually create leaders who are who are people first and foremost that's beautiful and um you, you, my mind in listening to your answer there went to a comment that claire pollock the senior deputy vice chancellor of western sydney university made on one of our panels at our recent headex event she talked about what was really needed by the sector last november when generative AI made such a big new and fresh impact on all of our thinking was for universities to be able to turn around within something like four weeks, new offerings and new short courses and new micro credentials on generative AI that could, could, could meet that really short term need. And she observed how talking about vulnerability and failure about how we failed to do that because of the unwieldy nature of our um, approval processes and everything that you've just described let's just move the focus of that a little bit as we move towards a close we've got much we've got not much more than four weeks left before the consultation on the interim report before the panel moves towards preparing its final report for a generation change of australia's universities with the gaps that we might observe in its understanding and its taking paying attention to the impact of technology. What 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 how would we best fill those gaps in four weeks with our understanding of all of this and what we would take from it to bring about lasting, purposeful and appropriate change in our system? I think that's an important question. And I don't know that I have a, a perfect answer to solve for that. But if I were trying to, I would probably start with a whole series of what if questions and statements. So rather than painting a picture of higher education in 2030 or 2050 being just a better version of what is now, I would just start by asking, what if there was no higher education? What if, uh, for example, an organization like Google became the dominant provider of all education around the world? What if we decided that knowledge or content was no longer the business of higher education? Um, what if we decided that the role of universities was purely community and connection? So I, I would just tease out a whole range of questions like that and then work back from it. What does it mean? So from an operational perspective, how would you then set up the sector? From a, you know, what, what capability do you need if that's the future state? What would that look like? Um, so that's, I'd rather just have these provocations about what could be um, and I really want us to engage with the question of I, I, deeply, are we going to be here? I, I really, I because I don't know, are we going to be here in the current shape or form? And so just by having, you know, institutions that maybe, yes, maybe another regional university, that's fine. Maybe fewer universities, maybe more distinction. Yes, that's all fine. But it still assumes that we will be here. And I just, I think that's kind of the fundamental question is, will we be here? Will we have a role? Well, they're really huge questions, Nora, and obviously someone that's um, giving a lot of thought to the really big and difficult questions that the, 
the sector is facing, that technology is posing to us and that our learners will need in the future. J just in closing, I wonder if you can tell us what are you most enjoying with that with that fear of things to um, be wary of? What are you actually most enjoying at the moment about leading learning innovation in a business school in Melbourne and in a role that's so pioneering in how organisations are at present and might in future be organised? Uh, it's a bit of a dream job to have the remit to challenge what's possible. So that's what I enjoy is actually asking how could we do this differently and being pleasantly surprised sometimes by by, by what is actually possible. So I do have a, a sense of optimism about what we can do in order to make sure that education um, serves a purpose and transforms lives. Well, it's certainly um, given lots of lots of food for thought today in this interview and conversation with you, Nora, about the importance of education changing lives and the opportunities and the possibilities that technology, innovation and new ways of doing things can can bring about the possibility of that happening. So for being such a, a thoughtful and interesting guest on HeadX today, we look forward to you joining us again in the future as a co-host with um, some of the interesting people that you're talking to. But for being with us today, thank you very much for joining us on HeadX. So Martin, I, I'm lucky enough, uh, or my organisation, I should say, is lucky enough to be part of that MBS incubator. And we were interviewed uh, I think it was in May or, or June, um, as to our perspective and our insights, both you know our market research and also just our general experience uh, with clients uh, around how we do see the future of work and the future of business um, playing out and then how MBS and MBS and would fit into that. And I've got to say, in other collaborations or partnerships, some of it's just a bit of a process and you sort of walk through it and knowing at some stage, probably nothing's going to come of this. This really feels like it's got substantial momentum behind it. It's got great sponsorship from the university or the business school. Um, and, you, and most importantly here, you've got the right people working on it. You know, Nora herself is, a, is clearly a talent. You know, she said she's 38 or something like that for the, for the way she operates and what she delivers, she could be 58. Like she's got an amazing wealth of experience and, and manner and her technique, it would be it from you know, conjugating concepts through to um, you know, persuasively delivering a, a topic. Um, you know, it's outstanding. So she, they've got great talent there sort of delivering this. And I, I felt that through the interview process. She's talking to the right people here. And there's a lot of organizations and people that are the wrong people in Melbourne and Sydney and she's um, or MBS and has certainly made um, some very, very good decisions in terms of who they're collaborating with. I think this idea of talking with the right people and having people that might be 38 year old points of view with 58 year olds levels of experience and wisdom is um, a really good metaphor to one of the biggest challenges that the whole accord process has and every organization has in such a dynamic point in time carl doesn't it and the, mm. there's a great danger of of when you're trying to look a long period ahead of being restricted from from the viewpoints of those that have already traveled much of the journeys that they might be on mm. rather than those that have got the the real personal drive and the personal commitment from having so much of their careers still ahead of this. I, I think that is a really big challenge for our accords mm. and why it's so important to tap into ecosystems like that, that, that Nora's leading. And I think it, it means that you have a completely different attitude towards technology. We've, we've commented on, and many have commented on the, the relative missing piece of technology and AI and new developments and new ways of doing business 
that might be a bit of a gap in the accord as it's articulated, rather than a focus so much on the current supply side. I think this was a lovely example of, and some pretty dramatic examples, and I know you want to talk about some of them, some pretty dramatic examples of new attitudes towards technology that can drive some very different ways of thinking about learning and about the higher education sector. Absolutely. But before we get to that, I think the other point here that is really worth um worth uh, stating is when when you see a sector change you, you, whether you know it or not you sort of look to where is the change coming from and so if the change is driven from the outliers um, it takes a long time to gain momentum because you don't have the mainstream buying into it now melbourne business school is mainstream so you've got one of the biggest most mainstream brands in the sector being possibly one of the most innovative so if we're going to start seeing a rapid shift this is where we're going to see it from yeah well that that, that there's that that lovely combination isn't there of prestige and reputation without it then constraining innovation and dynamic views of the future i, I I think that's much of the combination that we're really trying to bring about is as a change in higher education for goods in the work that we've been doing in headaches with the sector more broadly. And that globally, there are some fantastic exam examples of not only brand new institutions with new ways of doing things, but long established universities and institutions that have been open to new ideas, new technologies, new new models, new ways of thinking about the future. And that really has to be that combination of new startups and traditional institutions doing things in different ways. It will be that combination of those two sorts of institutions that will really drive the sort of growth, the sort of change, the sort of new way of thinking that the Accord calls for and, and the globe is calling for of solutions from higher education. Martin, you did mention uh, technology, and I think that's probably another thing we should talk about. Uh, the tech players that are being involved in the incubator with MBS and um, are the best in the business. So they've gone to Cremorne, where all the tech companies are. Um, they're all got their hand up. They've got the you know the best engineers. They do deliver. So I'm not surprised that that's happening. I think the solution will be partly in tech in this collaboration or partnership, you know, MBS leveraging their learning expertise and capability with these tech partners. Well, I, th I think that, that that focus on partnerships is really, really clear and loud in what you hear from Melbourne Business School more generally and Nora's messaging in particular. And then the, the focus on partnerships with technology and new perspectives on technology. I, th I think the idea of a learning Fitbit caught your attention, didn't it? And certainly that that comment that she made around how lecturers and teachers in higher education in the future might be impacted by artificially intelligent means of producing new content out of old recordings, mm. that really got my eyebrows going and I think would be a a sort of scenario that would be hugely impactful for universities in the future. But what do you think of a learning Fitbit? You've you've um, had thoughts of this sort of technology and solution in the past as well, haven't you? I have, not not to that extent. I, I think it's important to recognise the human condition and inter, in, not interfere, but um, present learning opportunity at the right time. You know, in, traditionally we've had these sort of linear timelines where you have to have something delivered in a certain point in time whether it be the right time for you personally, interpersonally, whatever's going with your family or work commitments, uh, you sort of have to squeeze it all in. And look, that's all, that's all fine. But my feeling on this is there's going to be 
times that are more conducive to actual learning. And I think this is the other key point that, but I do wonder about a Fitbit scenario. I love the idea of it. I just don't know that we're not going to be recognizing what people have seen as opposed to what they've learned and then what they can as a result do, which is obviously the most important thing. And now, as you say, the chances of technologies impacting our understanding of what we need to learn, how we might need to learn it, how how we can learn it and where we might learn it from and whether that leads to us being having our own competence or some level of augmented competence is, is a it's a very fast changing feast of um, ideas about what, what a new learning economy is going to look like is what Michael Roseman and I wrote about in, in one of the books that we came up with this year. Mm. And I think it, that is perfectly illustrated by some of the things that Nora says in that interview and is going on at Melbourne Business School. Yeah, look, I agree. I think the other thing you've mentioned here in terms of technology is the, the reality that we're very quickly going to be able to almost deep, deep fake uh, identity. So what Martin Betts has said, we can take your elements of your character and your personality, your tone of voice, and bring new content to life and, and credit it to you without you having said that. Now, that, that technology is already very available. That can happen. However, the ethics and the governance that's around that type of activity um, aren't mature enough to stop it from happening. It's not happening at the moment because there's a bit of a technological lag behind it. And also, hopefully, someone's got their hand up saying, hey, that seems wrong. But I think that's what we're sort of facing into now is this identity IP. How are we protecting uh, the IP that exists that's inherent in your identity, not just the content? Yeah, well, the the whole issue of identity from that sort of um, legal point of view and ethical point of view is is crucial. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact the feelings and emotions of identity that that people, practitioners within higher education in our universities have had. I, I often, I've, I've often heard it described that the the professors that work in universities, their principal association and identity is with themselves and their own teams that they work with, and beyond that, their own discipline, rather than the wider organisation. Mm. I think we've got a revolution going on here in how that concept an emotion of identity mm. and, um, you know, sense of belonging that you have as a practitioner within your research and within your teaching and learning within universities is being turned on its head as technology emerges that can represent and, and re-validate how people are perceived as being individual experts or parts of bigger organisations that are promoting learning. I think we've got a a real cultural adjustment going on there in the people that will work with in higher education and those that will exper experience its learning in the future. And on top of that, Martin, with that sort of change taking place, there's obviously a cultural readiness component. And I can tell you from the Culture Institute, we are seeing precisely 0% of organisations ready for the cultural shift that's going to be required to embrace AI effectively and also ethically. I think that's the other thing. There's one thing about in adopting and integrating AI practices, and that's taking place all the time. That's fine, but uh, how are we doing that? Are we starting with ethics and and you know with governance as the overlay? Not really. I don't think so. Uh, we're not seeing that, and that's going to be really required here, particularly when we do talk about um, the authenticity of uh, identity IP. So a uh, lot, lot to be done. And the big question for any leader of a university is: How are you going to know your state of readiness? How are you knowing cultural readiness? As, as a mass survey of what's going on in higher education globally, and particularly, I think, in Australian higher education, is that we're not ready for the sort of 
disruption of technology that will come forward with the emergence of different artificial intelligence technologies on on the practice of learning, on the practice of research, on the practice of our doing business. And we need an Accords final report that is much more recognizing of that fact and gives um, more pointers and more views from the future and views from the demand side of higher education down the track that allows that to become something that we're much more ready for. Terrific. Couldn't agree more. And that's all we have time for on this episode of Headaches. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Carl.